This morning, we are continuing our series on principles of the Reformation. 500 years ago, October 31, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther wanted to have a debate regarding some of the teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church, the church of the day. Uh, There were 95 issues um, that it came down to that he wanted to discuss, and it was the dissemination of these 95 theses across Europe that officially began the movement known as the Protestant Reformation. In the Reformation, many glorious truths of Scripture were recovered that had been lost or obscured by the corruption that had overtaken the church. The Reformation reminds us that Scripture is to be our highest authority for life and faith. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that all we do should be to the glory of God alone. And I want to remind us of our goal in this series. Our goal in this series on the Reformation is is not to, to go over these things so that we walk away more knowledgeable about everything that's gone wrong with them out there. This isn't a series meant to puff us up because we have it right and they have it wrong. In reality, the legalism that we see existing in the Roman Catholic Church is simply an expression of the bent and tendency of every human heart, even ours. We need to know what has happened over the last 500 years, not so that we feel high and mighty because we've finally arrived far from it, but we need to know these things so that we don't fall into the same trap ourselves and so that we can know the areas that we need to grow in still. In the Reformation, God worked through faithful men and women to rescue His people from the corruption that had overtaken the church. Corruption that comes from unchecked human hearts like ours. Now, as we've said, the corruption in the church at the time had become so significant that it became necessary for the Reformers to articulate in a precise manner how to distinguish a true church from a false one. The answer that the Reformers discovered in Scripture was fairly straightforward. In every true church, there must be the pure gospel preached. There must be the right administration of the sacraments. And there must be the exercise of church discipline. And these three marks of the church is what we've been considering together for the last two weeks. In the last two weeks, we've considered the pure gospel preached, and the right administration of the sacraments. We said worship is central to the life of the church, and the preaching of the gospel is central in our worship. We preach only God's Word, and we preach all of God's Word. The second mark, the right administration of the sacraments. Here we've said that there are only two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And these two, Jesus actually instituted in His church to be continued until the end of the world. In the sacraments, or ordinances if you prefer, prefer, we see a visible depiction of the gospel and we are invited to live upon God as our greatest portion and to commune with Him and one another in love. Well, we come then this morning to the third and final mark that is necessary for a group of disciples to rightly 
call themselves a church. Historically, this mark has been identified as church discipline. Remember, this isn't all that's necessary for a church to be really functioning well and healthy, but these three marks are what's necessary for a church to be a church. And so we come then to the third church discipline. In Matthew 16, uh, verses 13 to 20, Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now here he's talking about his church universal, made up of all believers of all times in all places. And so this doesn't guarantee that any particular local church will not ever be overcome. We see this happen far too frequently. There are many ways that the gates of hell may prevail against a particular local church. Through false doctrine or bad leadership, hostile surroundings, to name a few. But one of the most common ways that the gates of hell prevail against local churches is through our own sin and division. You see, our enemy walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 that we ought not to be outwitted by him since we know that he has many schemes. We need not be ignorant of his schemes. And one of the ways that a local church, that our church, could crumble under the gates of hell if left unchecked is through division, strife, and living unreconciled lives. Lives, in practical terms, that are unreconciled to God and lives that are unreconciled to one another. This is why the topic today, church discipline, as kind of foreboding as the term is and the maybe queasy feeling we get in our stomachs when we hear it, that's why it's so important, is because church discipline is about reconciliation. It's about being a part of what Christ is doing in the world to build a church to build churches against which the gates of hell shall not prevail. Well, I invite you then to take your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, and join me in Matthew chapter 18. And we'll be in verses 15 to 20. The title of the sermon this morning is Biblical Church, and we will consider the third mark of discipline. And the key words for our worshipers in training are sin, forgiveness, and discipline, and if I could add a fourth, would be restoration. As we read the text this morning, there are four things that I want you to see which will serve as the outline for the sermon. First, notice the guidelines that Christ gives us for this church discipline. Second, notice the goal of discipline. Third, the gift. And Fourth, the gravity. So four G's, guidelines, goal, gift, and gravity. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. I will read those verses now. If your brother, Jesus says, if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything in my name, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's consider then first the the guidelines that Christ gives us to work out this preservation of the church. If we said that the verses from Matthew 16 are about the creation of the church, our text is about the preservation of the church. Jesus begins with a hypothetical but all too real scenario. He says, if your brother sins against you. The context of the situation then is when a sin has been committed. Committed against you. The church, you see, isn't a place for perfect people, but for sinners who are loved by the perfect one. We are going to sin. We are going to sin against one another, and we are going to sin against one another a lot. What are we to do when someone does sin against us? Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. Well, there are three elements to this first step that Jesus notes here. He says we must be direct, we must be discreet, and we must go without delay. So first, we must go directly. When a brother sins against us, what are we supposed to do? We are to go tell him his fault. Confrontation is hard. It's messy. Personally, I want to run away from confrontation. But we can't. We are called to confront one another in love when it's necessary. Now, Proverbs 10, 12 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Amen. If your brother sins against you and you can overlook it, do so. But if you can't, if you can't overlook the sin, and it is beginning to cause friction in your relationship, and you can't overcome it, and you're beginning to grow bitter at any level with your brother or your sister in Christ, Jesus tells us, go to that person and address the issue. We're not to passively, aggressively kind of hint around that we're upset about something, hoping that they will catch on. But we shouldn't yell and scream at the offending brother either. He says, go and tell him his fault. Be direct. Don't beat around the bush, but don't be overly aggressive either. Go and tell him. He says we also must be discreet. He says, go and tell that person between you and him alone. So in short, what does this forbid? Gossip. It is tempting to bring other people into a, a, a situation. There are times, perhaps, that we may need to seek help and advice from someone else before addressing a brother or sister in sin. But the rule of thumb is that we want as few people as possible involved at every step along the way. We go discreetly. We go just one-on-one. It's tempting to bring someone else in because I think, honestly, we love feeling vindicated. We love when that person we're wanting to bring in says, what? How could he do that? 
We love taking our vengeance out on people by telling others their sins. It reminds us, maybe, we, or it not, doesn't remind us, but it, it helps us to think wrongly that maybe we're not so bad after all. Gossip is always and only self-serving. It doesn't care for the other person. It lifts us up by dragging them down. And so our first response is not to go and tell everyone that we can what happened to us. Our first response should be to go and talk with the offending brother or sister one-on-one. Well, there's a third element to this first step. We go directly, discreetly, and this third one may not be as clear from the text, but I think it's certainly implied. We go without delay. What he's implying here when he says, when he sins, go, is that your immediate response should be to go and solve the issue. Why? Well, there are two reasons. Two reasons that I want to mention here. There could be more. First, going to reconcile with your brother immediately will almost in all cases help you to fight the temptation to brood over the sin, and it will help you to fight the temptation to tell others about it. Think about that. If your, if your first response is to seek reconciliation directly and discreetly with your offending brother, what time is there for brooding or for gossip? A second and related reason that going without delay is so important is that it curbs the tendency for molehills to grow into mountains. Too often we are offended by something and we simply sit on it. Perhaps we're trying to overlook the sin, but even when we realize that we can't overlook it, oftentimes we still don't go. We say things to ourselves like, it's, oh, it's, just, it's been too long now. It would, it would really just be awkward to bring that situation up, given that it was a month ago. I'll get over it eventually. But we don't. In fact, because you never brought it up, the offending brother likely doesn't even know that his actions or his words offended you. And so what happens? He does it again and again and again. And before we know it, there are hundreds or thousands of little things that have happened, and we are furious with this other person. And now we're clearly sinning because we're not acting in accord with Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Because love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And so when we finally do sit down to work these things out, we have a giant list of offenses that on their own, if we're honest, aren't that big of a deal. But because we've delayed in seeking reconciliation, we've grown hotter and hotter over the original offense, and certainly any since then, And now we have to go through full-blown counseling and mediation to settle what initially would have been a relatively minor dispute. And so Jesus tells us that when a brother sins against us, we are to go to them directly, discreetly, and without delay. What do we do, though, if these things have, have been done and our brother refuses to hear us? Well, we take one or two others along and we we make our appeal through them. We make our appeal again. The purpose of this, remember though, isn't we're not ganging up on a brother or sister in hopes of just getting our way. And so, should we go and find the one or two people that are most likely to agree with us and, 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 and have my back? 
Is that who I want to bring to you? No. Go and find two people who aren't simply going to side with you in the matter, but are going to truly be, as best as they can, impartial. A reason for this, this why we bring someone else in at this point, is to really help establish if the offense was even real. Perhaps we've just overreacted to something, and there was no real sin committed. I just misunderstood what you said. But if we bring two people along who are willing to impartially judge the situation, they may be able to help me see that. No, he didn't mean that. Or they may be able to help the other person who initially refused to be reconciled, didn't think he had done anything wrong. They may help the other person see that they actually have committed a sin. And they do need your forgiveness. And they do need to be reconciled. This is why Jesus refers to the principle in Deuteronomy 19.15, where in a judicial proceeding, all evidence must be confirmed on the basis of the testimony of two or three witnesses. One person isn't enough. We, we see things from our perspective, and it's important to see it from others. Well, what if, after bringing one or two others along, the offender still will not listen? Jesus says we tell it to the church. Jesus isn't explicit here on exactly what this means, but typically the the sin at this point would be made known to the elders of the church, who in turn would do some pleading of their own, and if a resolution can't be reached, then the entire church community is brought in. And again, this isn't a way of strong-arming a person into submission to our will, but it provides an opportunity for the whole body to reach out and seek restoration in the relationship. If, however, after a time of pleading from the entire congregation, the sinner still refuses to repent and be reconciled, we are called to consider him as outside the covenant community. Now, it's easy to misunderstand exactly what this means. When a church, uh, as it's called formally, excommunicates an obstinate and unrepentant sinner, it doesn't mean that, we're, that we now we hate this person and that we never want to see this person again and that we're hoping that this person will go to hell. In fact, it's just the opposite. And there are two basic and necessary elements that, that need to be present in our excommunication if when that ever unfortunately occurs. First, the person, while they would be welcome, while he would be welcome to attend public worship, unless because of whatever sins he was committing, he was deemed a, a, a real threat to the community, he would be welcome to attend worship, but he wouldn't be given opportunities to serve within the church and would be instructed not to partake of the Lord's Supper, since it's the memorial meal of the covenant community. And secondly, as a, as a kind of a ground of that first element, excommunication means that the person is to be viewed as an unbeliever. And as such, he becomes an object, for lack of a better word, for evangelism. We are to continue to call this person to repentance as we are able, longing for restoration with him to the Lord and, and to 
the body. And so we don't hate an excommunicated person, but our relationship with him is going to change. You don't remain best friends with this person while he's under church discipline. And so whatever, to avoid being overly technical, we'll just say this, that whatever our interaction with him is after this formal discipline from membership, our interaction is now characterized by an experience of brokenness and a longing for restoration. Well, that then, those are, those are the, the guidelines, or that's the, the process that Jesus gives us for church discipline. Well, what about the goal? Look again at verse 15. You may have noticed that I skipped right over the last clause in the verse. Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, when you go and tell him his fault, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This, this is the purpose of church discipline from beginning to end. Step one through the end, this is it. This is what we want. We want reconciliation. We want our brother back. When you confront a brother or sister in sin, this must be your motivation. We must confess. It is easy to go to an offending brother simply to convince him of his fault or to make him feel bad, just to get him to apologize, but that's not love. Love motivates us to move toward another person, not in anger, not with malice, not for revenge, but in hope of restoration. We are called to strive for peace with all men. How much more so those within our church body. Think. Think of a a conflict that you've recently been in, or perhaps one you're in right now, and ask yourself this question. What motivates my actions in this situation? Is it restoration or retaliation? Is it peace or punishment? Reconciliation is the goal of confrontation. Why? It seems clear here that that's the goal, but why? Why must reconciliation be so central a motivation? For at least two reasons. First, it's so that we avoid hypocrisy. We know that we cannot rightly claim to be reconciled to God, whom we cannot see, if we are living unreconciled lives with our brothers and sisters whom we can see. There are numerous texts to which we could turn to make this point, but we'll, we'll make it easy. We'll stay within Matthew. Look back at Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. There, Jesus says, in the context of being angry with one another, that if we are making an offering to the Lord, and we know that our brother has something against us, as in, we're the offending brother or sister, and someone has something against us, we go first to that brother and we are reconciled to him. We go first to that sister and we are reconciled with her. Then we can come before God. We seek reconciliation in this process because it's the height of hypocrisy to come before God with hatred in our hearts toward our brother. Christ died for that person. Shall we lovingly come before our Lord if we are 
experiencing discord that we've not sought to reconcile with our brother. Remember, this isn't about them out there. This is about us. Let's turn it on ourselves. Ask yourself, have you done this? What about this morning? Is there someone here in this room, or they're not in this room, but ordinarily they would be, that you are angry with? There's someone here that you are offended with them. Have you made any effort to be reconciled with this person? Now, this doesn't mean that we will be best friends with everyone in our church body or that every offense will be solved and settled immediately. But what does it mean? It means that we will, at the very least, have a posture of reconciliation toward one another. It means that if we can't be reconciled, It's not because of me. If I can't be reconciled, I don't want it to be because of me. Let it be on the other person. This is probably most prominent, not so much with just each other, but within our families, husbands, wives. Have you ever come to worship angry with one another? Parents and children, have you come angry with one another? Children, have you come angry with your siblings? How often do we come to worship holding a grudge against a brother or sister? May we we learn to avoid hypocrisy in this matter, and may we seek reconciliation with one another before we, we come together. Well, secondly, why is reconciliation so central? Well, and this is a related point, but this hypocrisy is seen by the world as well. It's through our unity and our love that the nations see the glory of God. They see His love in our love. Our disunity causes the nations to blaspheme God's name. And so we we want to be careful to express and display unity and love when we deal with one another's sins. Because when we bite and devour one another, the world looks on and blasphemes God because of the disunity of His people. Do we give the nation's cause to blaspheme God's name because of the way we handle conflict in our midst? Well, let's turn thirdly then to the gift of discipline. We've seen the guidelines, the goal. What about the gift? And this third point is is really more of an implication of the, the previous point about the goal rather than maybe an actual observation from this text. But I think it's there, and I think it's important to have it here in the sermon because it's Church discipline is so often misunderstood. Church discipline is not an ugly, heavy burden that the church must bear until the Lord returns. While it is often difficult, it is a gift graciously given to the church by Christ Himself that we may live holy lives pleasing to Him. And there are two examples from Scripture that I want to set before us this morning that will help us clearly see this gift. Consider David. 
when David was king over Israel, one day he goes up to his rooftop to gaze upon his kingdom. While gazing, his eyes light upon a woman bathing down below named Bathsheba. And what transpires next is one of the saddest stories, I think, in all of the Bible. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is out at war. He's in David's army, fighting where David should have been as the leader of this army. But David wasn't. He was at home. And so he sees Bathsheba. He takes her. He lays with her. He impregnates her. And in an effort to cover up his misdeeds, David calls Uriah home from battle to get him to lay with his wife so that it would seem like the child is Uriah's. But since Uriah is an honorable man, what does he do? He refuses to enjoy his wife's embrace while his brothers are out fighting. David then has Uriah murdered. And he takes Bathsheba and marries her. David remains silent about his sins for some time. He then begins to lose control at home. His son Amnon assaults his own half-sister Tamar, David's daughter. And David does nothing about this whatsoever, either as a father or as king. His other son, Absalom, then kills Amnon and flees the kingdom only to return and incite an insurrection against David. David loses the kingdom and nearly his life. Eventually, Absalom is killed and David is restored as the king of Israel. Now, at some point in all of this, the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him. And it was this confrontation along with... I think with the Lord's chastisement of David through the rebellion and death of his son Absalom, that God ultimately used David, or this is what God used to bring David back from the cliff of destruction toward which he was headed. The point in this illustration is is to say this how hard must a person be to descend like David does to these depths? Abdication of duty, pride, lust, adultery, theft, lying, and even murder. This is David, a man after God's own heart. How hard must his heart have been to stoop so low? How far removed from his communion with God must he have been? How hard must our hearts be? But you see, we serve a merciful God. What a merciful God David served that he would send him the prophet Nathan Nathan, to rebuke him in his sins. What a mercy that is that God would send David to the brink of utter annihilation at the hand of his own son that he might turn back from his self-love and he would learn to live upon God as his portion. What about you? How hard must you be? What, at times, must God do to bring you back? What about Job? Job, the the upright and blameless man of us. While it's true that Job's initial response to his sufferings at the hand of the devil, they're quite worthy of commendation. If you continue to read on past the first two chapters, it becomes quite apparent in his conversation with his friends that Job has placed himself in the judgment seat over God. When we come to the end in Job 38, the Lord answers Job's complaining. 
He says, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And he asks him a series of stinging rhetorical questions that leave Job speechless. Job lays his hand on his mouth and promises silence, but God isn't done with him yet. He goes on and questions him further, and he asks, Will you even put me in the wrong? Job, will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, or can you thunder with a voice like His? Question after question flies from the mouth of God, each one hitting Job like a ton of bricks. Why? What is the purpose in all of this? What is the purpose of Job's suffering and God's rebuke? While we can't be sure of all that God intended in it, we can see a glimpse of God's intention in Job's last response. These things brought Job to the end of himself that he might live fully upon God. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What mercy this is. That God would stand against Job in order that Job might come to the end of himself. In order that Job might stop trusting in himself and putting himself in the right and putting God in the wrong. How far might Job have gone away from God had God not intervened? And what about us? What about you? What mercy is it that God has given us this gift, this gift of church discipline that when we sin against one another, there are, there's a, a relational process in place to keep us from wandering off into the depths of sin that we never thought possible. The truth is, we are David. We are Job. Think of any of the saints in, the, in Scripture. Think of Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon. Think of their lives. Think of their sins. Some of their sins are so heinous, we can hardly speak of them. And yet if we think that we wouldn't run off into sins far worse than theirs if God's hand of mercy was removed from us for even eight seconds, we are deceiving ourselves. You and I, truth be told, we are only about 10 minutes away at any given moment from the most horrendous sins imaginable. So we thank God for His restraining hand of mercy. We thank God that Christ is our great Savior. That He has bought us and purchased us with His blood on the cross. He has died in our place and that He has given us this process in church life that even because of our sins, when we are left to ourselves for a time, we don't, pl- we don't plunge headlong to the craggy rocks beneath the cliff that, upon whose edge we so often live. And so are you grateful? Are you grateful? Am I grateful? Are we grateful when brothers and sisters confront us in our sins? We should be. It's a hard work, 
but it's a necessary work. And we ought to thank God that He's placed people in our lives who will pull us back from the edge. That is church discipline. Fundamentally, it's about restoration, reconciliation. Well, fourthly then, what about the gravity? We've seen the guidelines, the goal, the gift. What about the gravity or the weight of discipline? Now, there is a lot that could be said about verses 18 to 20 in Matthew 18 here. There's a lot of misunderstanding about them, but all I want to say, all we really have time for this morning is to say this. We need to understand the, the weight and the gravity of this gift. Jesus says that whatever we bind and loose on earth is confirmed in heaven. Jesus has granted the church significant authority in this regard. Jesus has given authority to the church to set an unrepentant sinner outside of its communion and fellowship. Commentator Matthew Henry writes, If the censures of the church duly follow the institution of Christ, His judgments will follow the censures of the church. His spiritual judgments, which are the sorest of all other. For Christ will not suffer His own ordinances to be trampled upon, but will say amen to the righteous sentences which the church passes on obstinate sinners. He goes on, However light proud scorners may take the censures of the church, let them know that they are confirmed in the court of heaven, and it is vain for them to appeal to that court, for judgment is there already given against them. Christ then not only recognizes but confirms the dutiful judgments of the church in this regard. This is what he means when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is omnipresent. God is always with us, even when we're alone. What he's saying here is that even in the smallest of congregations, he gives his endorsement in their binding and loosing and their requests. And so what this doesn't mean is that it, it would, doesn't mean that we can prevent someone from saving prevent the Lord from saving someone whom He intends to save. What we need to see here, though, is that we must walk patiently with one another and we, not, we need not be too hasty in our judgments. We don't sweep sins under the rug, but we realize that change is hard and change takes time and that we ought not be too quick to oust someone from our midst. If we are committed to restoration, we will not be too quick and hasty in this process. How many times must a brother sin against us before we count him as an unbeliever? Once? Twice? Seven? Seventy times? Jesus says seventy times seven, meaning that we really don't place a limit on our willingness to forgive. How long must we endure with someone in step one before we go into step two? Do we bring someone else in the moment the offender doesn't do exactly what we've asked? Or do we patiently bear with one another as long as we can? How quickly do we move through each step of this process? While there are some sins, like someone who's being extremely divisive, spreading discord and false doctrine, or someone sexually or physically preying upon members in the congregation, 
process gets sped up very quickly in those kinds of situations. You may even skip steps. But most of the sins that we encounter with one another in our daily lives should not move us that quickly from step one to step two to three to four. We ought to bear patiently with one another as the Lord has borne patiently with us. Well, in conclusion then, there are four uh, brief lessons that we can draw from this text. First, when a brother or sister sins against you, go and make every effort to settle the matter. Just you and the offending person, and do so humbly and in love. This is obvious, but it needs to be said. If you run up into someone's face yelling and screaming because he sinned against you, you're going to have a really hard time gaining him as an audience. If you really want to be reconciled, you will confront the offending brother, but you will do so lovingly and humbly, admitting your own sins in the matter, not just throwing their sins in their face. Second, if you are confronted by a brother or sister in your sins, thank them. Thank God and repent. Let's not make the command to go and confront one another any harder than it already is by being unapproachable people. Let's If you don't have this, seek out people in this church that you know well or maybe someone you would like to know well and explicitly tell them that they can call you out on your sins anytime. Let's give each other the green light to hold one another accountable. Third, when confronting one another, do so longing to be reconciled and do so patiently. We don't go around confronting one another because we want to stir up drama. That's dissension. We also ought not go around writing people off the moment they sin against us or respond poorly to our first attempt at confrontation. Fourthly, while this here is primarily concerned with people in our own church, this is you know, individual local churches, right? Take it to the the authority of the church in the end. There is application for other Christians in other churches. And, And in some ways, the same basic steps follow. Perhaps in the end, there's less that can be done if if this other brother or sister refuses to repent. But steps one and two certainly are still employed. Go to that person, just you and him. And even beyond that, there are ways that, that, are, that churches can help between each other to settle the matter. So this is, while primarily we think in terms of our interaction with one another as members here at Redeemer, this applies also to other churches. And so with that, we see the three marks of a true local church. The, the pure preaching of the gospel, the right administration of the sacraments and church Discipline. May God help us to remember these things, not as a way of judging and condemning those people out there who have it wrong, but as a way of helping ourselves to grow in grace and holiness and to remain committed to His Word for our lives as individuals and as a church. Jesus died so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor. He has built His church against which the gates of hell shall not prevail, Let us strive together to be a church here in Rinkin as Redeemer Baptist Church, a church like that against which the gates of hell 
will not prevail. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that your name would be exalted in our midst. You who are able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Take this word, O Lord, this word preached this morning, this word before us, and drive it home to our hearts. Plant its truth truth deep within us that we might learn to live upon you as our greatest portion and that we might live in peace and harmony with one another together as your church. For the glory of your name, the advancement of your kingdom, and the joy of your people, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.